In the name of the Father, and the Son, and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. So I want to invite you, over these next five weeks, to think with me about uh, really one of the most legendary figures in all of the Hebrew scriptures. Um, it would be hard to overestimate the significance of Moses uh, in the Judeo-Christian tradition. And this morning I want you to think with me not just about his childhood, but his early uh, years of development as a leader. Because it, it seems to me that um, at every turn, Moses has something to teach us about our own legends. For example, there is so much to be learned from Moses' early life. Um, his childhood, his adolescence was a study in contrast. And I think it's a model to us of how you and I can respond to circumstances in our lives that are less than perfect. Um, so you'll remember, Moses was born in a time uh, in Egyptian history where the Hebrews had fallen out of favor with Egypt's elite. They had, uh, they had migrated south from Israel uh, about 400 years earlier when one of their own, Joseph, had risen in power. He became second in command, sort of the secretary of agriculture, I think you would call him. But then across these intervening centuries, um, they had multiplied, and therefore the Egyptians had become weary and leery of their presence uh, in the country, felt that something had to be done to curtail their influence. Adam Hamilton, in the book that we're using to study Moses in our, in our adult ed uh, series, uh, Adam reminds us that fear can cause even people in power to do terrible things to people and to peoples, and that that has been true for many years in our own country in the 1800s. This is why we treated the Irish so poorly. At the end of the uh, 1800s, the Chinese were referred to as the Yellow Peril. In the 1920s, the Immigration Act was designed to keep Jews out of the country, as well as people from Greece and Spain, and of course to let people like me from Great Britain or France or Germany in. And of course, fear is being used right now by many of our most prominent politicians in this country to divide us and to make us afraid of people who are not like us. So it was that the Pharaoh issued a very harsh edict. Uh, every Hebrew male child that was born should be killed. It was an attempt to intimidate it, or, and to uh, curb the influence of these outsiders. Well, the parents of Moses were a very crafty lot. Uh, much like their ancestor, Jacob. So they found a way to somehow have this baby born and then devised strategies to keep him undetected from the Egyptians. And one of those strategies was to build a little float just big enough for the infant. They put him among the bulrushes along the Nile River, and there it floated during the day. His older sister would keep watch at a safe distance while 
his parents were working in the fields. To this day, I do not understand why such a terrifying story, why we have always insisted on teaching this to our third graders in Sunday school. Why would you do this? Anyway, one morning, the infant cried at an inopportune time. It happened that the pharaoh's daughter was bathing close by, and so she came to investigate. But instead of calling someone to execute her father's orders, her compassion for this Hebrew child welled up. Not only did she not order him killed, right there on the spot she said that she would adopt him. Well, the sister, watching at a safe distance, immediately intervened and said, I think I can help to arrange this. In fact, I know a Hebrew woman who would be delighted to nurse this child for you. And so it was that Moses grew up with his own biological mother nurturing him in those early years and uh, whispering in his ear about who he really was. And then, of course, as he got older, he was the beneficiary of a royal education and all of the privileges that went with being son of the Pharaoh's daughter, which meant that young Moses um, came into his early adulthood with two distinct backgrounds in his makeup, which produced for him a painful dilemma. With which of these will I myself as I move into adulthood. Some of you have heard me say that for my money there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who want to make the world a better place for everyone and, those, and then there are those who are content to make a better world for themselves in the world just as it is. So if Moses had been of the latter sort, he would never have thought anymore about his Hebrew origins. He would have simply moved away from his background as Hebrew slave, and he would have spent the rest of his life living among Egypt's 1%. But Moses proved to be of better stuff than that. Because Moses realized, as I think all of us need to, no human being is an isolated island, that we are all part of the continent of humanity, which is to say that it can never be good for any of us until it is finally good for all of us. You've heard that. We simply cannot pursue our own private good. The contemporary mystic Robert McNamara says, you dare not go into the presence of God all alone because God will ask you what he asked of your brother Cain at the beginning. Where is your brother? Robert Bella, in his wonderful book, Habits of the Heart, suggests that one of the most insidious things at work today in American culture is our selfish individualism that thinks only in terms of the small circle of self, as if what happens to everybody else doesn't matter. You see it at every level of our society. You see it on college campuses, where some young people care only about how much money they're going to make, not, how, not what contribution they will make. You see it among adults who care only about their own medical plan, but don't care about 
the medical plan for anyone else. You see it in churches who hoard their rich resources. You see it in communities that care only about their local school system but could care less about everybody else's school system. And you see it in nations that try to isolate themselves and keep themselves from taking their place as the proper leaders in this world. And our children, of course, and our youth pick up on that because they are always watching. And Bella contrasts that selfishness with the spirit of the Mayflower. Um, you may remember that before they ever set foot in 1620 off of that boat, those pilgrims signed a contract with one another. And it was very clear that what happened to any of them mattered to all of them. And this, he says, is the reason that they survived those early years. We have to be concerned beyond ourselves. And so it was that the young Moses recognized his ties with his downtrodden kinsfolk. He set out to make the world a better place for everyone. But I think we can also learn from Moses that methodology is just as important as good intentions. In other words, you can be um, a wonderful idealist, but in this world, you have to learn to strategize. And ironically, young Moses thought that he could change the world through one act of violence. He could do away with all of these ancient wrongs. And so it was that one day, he saw an Egyptian overlord mistreating a Hebrew slave, and anger rose up in him, and he killed that Egyptian. I'm not sure what he thought would happen. Did he think that that would be the spark that would ignite the Hebrews to revolution? It's not clear. What is clear is that it led everyone on all sides to mistrust him. The Hebrews were not ready for revolution. Not at that time. They were not ready to pay the price that it takes for a people to gain freedom. And the Egyptians, much like our southern ancestors in this country, were far too invested in a slave economy to let people go without a battle. As a result, because of poor strategy, Moses found himself an outcast on every side. He had to flee into the deserts east of Egypt. And here we see him coming to a second crucial crossroad in his life. How would he respond to what the poets sometimes call a shipwreck of dreams? Here was this noble desire to make the world a better place for everybody. And it had collided head on into the rigidity of an ancient and unjust society. And I would suggest to you that that is a significant rite of passage for every one of us. What do you do when plan A for your life lies there in shambles at your feet? When those things that you thought you would obtain as soon as you graduated from high school 
or college clearly are not going to materialize right away. Or the relationship that you thought would be yours for a lifetime is no longer there. I have known people uh, who have let that be the effective end of their meaningful life. That is, when the first effort at trying to establish themselves doesn't succeed, they just give up altogether. I was remembering this week, I had an old friend, I think this was way back in the late 70s, and she went to track down her long-lost brother. He was living on a commune in some isolated place down south. Um, she said when she got there, everyone was high. <laughs> All they were doing was complaining about the world that they lived in. And when she asked his brother, her brother, how he had come to that kind of immobility, he said, look, I tried. I worked for three straight summers for the George McGovern campaign. And what came of it? You can't change this society of ours. Three months working for a single political candidate, and he was done. Makuma Matata. What I want to suggest to you is that one of the great capacities that we as human beings have is to cultivate the, cultivate the capacity for plan B when plan A is no longer possible. To be willing to stoop and to pick up pieces and then to do something rather than nothing, this is one of the great choices that every one of us have. And it is a choice just like making the world better for everyone or just for yourself. Moses wasn't above plan B when plan A came tumbling down. And what that meant was that he made do with what was available to him. He found some Midianite shepherds who were tending sheep out in the Sinai. He, uh, he aligned himself with one of the powerful chiefs, in fact, married the chief's daughter. He began to work for his father-in-law, and for 40 years, far away from the grandeur of Egypt, where he thought he would have made his mark, he tended sheep, he picked up the pieces, and most of all, he kept his heart open, even though his earliest dreams had not come true. And it was that openness and that curiosity that became the golden thread that opened the door to the second passage that Kathy read for us today. Forty years, a lifetime out in the wilderness. But on this one particular morning, like any morning, he is looking across the horizon and he sees a fire. Not unusual, a hot climate, bushes broke into flames periodically. But this one, as Moses stared, continued to burn and was not consumed. He'd never seen anything like this before. I suppose in his cynicism, he could have said, there's nothing new under the sun. All you'll find is the repetition of things that we have already discovered. And yet there was this curious, open self, which is really the heart of aliveness, and that somehow drew him towards what he had not yet experienced. And did you hear in the scriptures, it says, 
When God saw that Moses turned aside to examine the mystery, then he knew he had an opening into Moses' heart. Because wonder is the way that God gets into our spirits. Into that window of wonder, God came and said to Moses, the dream that you had is now feasible. You remember how you wanted to make the world a better place. But in your immaturity, you thought you could do that by violence, and it didn't work. Now, Moses, now the Hebrews are ready. The Egyptians have become decadent. Now is the moment when what you dreamed of doing is at last possible. And I think it's significant that in those 40 years, it was not just the Hebrews and the Egyptians, but Moses who had changed. He was no longer the arrogant young idealist who thought that he could do everything. In fact, he seems hesitant. He resists that call. And it is then that Moses told him something that for my money is the secret of every creative enterprise. Namely, Moses, I will go with you. I'm not asking you to sing a solo. I am inviting you up on this stage for a duet. I am simply inviting you uh, to join me in this mission. And that is what made all the difference. Here is the deepest and perhaps the best kept secret that any of us could learn. God's name really is Emmanuel, God with us. We are not alone in what we face or what we are asked to do. Do you remember the old story about a um, little boy was playing with his ball one day uh, in his backyard, and the ball inadvertently hopped the fence? So he went to get it, and a uh, bunch of teenagers were hanging out next door, and um, bullying is not something that is new. They uh, decided to taunt him. They held the ball high enough that he couldn't get it. And so he broke into tears. He went back and told his father what had happened. His father was at a point where he was trying to teach his son to be a little more self-reliant. So he said, son, you need to go back over there and tell them that it's your ball and that you want it back. So not once but twice he tried. And both times he was rebuffed. And the third time, he just came back dispirited. His father recognized that a new strategy was called for. He said, I, I want you to go back one more time, son. But this time, I will go with you. Well, that changed everything. The little boy dried his tears. He squared his shoulders. There was a resolute spring in his step as once more he went next door. He went right up to that antagonist and said, I have come for my ball, and you better give it to me because today I brung my daddy. It's a metaphor for all of us in terms of how we can do life. Emmanuel has promised that he will always go before us. You do not have to parent alone. Tomorrow when you go to work, he will walk in in front of you. 
When you are wheeled down on the stretcher towards surgery, it is never just the person at the front or the rear who are going with you. And one day when you are in that hospital room or at home or wherever it is, you will not die alone. He will go with you. That is the difference that turned Moses from a quaking, self-doubting person into a confident and companioned liberator. So Moses has a few things to teach us at the beginning. He made the choice between making the world a better place for everyone or just for himself. He shows us how to act when our plans and our dreams don't come true. There is always a plan B. He models for us how to stay open to wonder. And he shows us the God who promises to always go before us. So as we come to this place to meet the one who the New Testament calls the new Moses, let us dare to face today and tomorrow in confidence. Why? Because today we bring our daddy. Amen. <laughs>